The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello, everybody. A warm welcome to Squawk Box. We are live from the World Economic Forum in Davos, and I'm Jeff Cutmore. And I'm Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. So, uh, interesting views expressed overnight. Doom and gloom in Davos. Billionaire investor George Soros issuing a series of stark warnings, saying China's zero-COVID policy could lead to a worldwide depression, while Ukraine could spark World War III which civilization would not survive. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen telling CNBC that the bloc should reach an agreement on a Russian oil embargo, quote, within days. She says it's every nation's duty to fund Ukraine's reconstruction, including the use of Russian assets. It is not trivial, but if the whole world is standing up to support Ukraine to rise from the ashes, also Russia should uh, give its fair share. US retailers, which let's be honest about it, have been such a, a source of pain for the market, now look set to lift Wall Street back into the green. This after Nordstrom raises its outlook on a solid set of sales, whilst Treasury yields sink, meanwhile, to lows not seen since April. This ahead of Fed minutes due today. And Glencore faces a $1.5 billion bill to settle bribery charges in three countries in what the U.S. Justice Department calls the biggest criminal enforcement action for commodity price manipulation in oil markets. And I'm Juliana Tattlebaum. Also coming up on the show this morning, Stellantis calls on policymakers to walk back ambitious EV adoption targets, warning of raw material shortage will last for years. Morning. So, yeah, good I'm morning. Sorry, it said Jeff Q, so you should it say It did like say that. Jeff Q. I was just going to say, well, um, welcome everybody to day three of our coverage here from the World Economic Forum. Obviously, there have been a lot of developments in terms of economic data and um, other uh, stories uh, through the last 24 yeah. hours here, but there's also been quite a lot happening on the ground in Dallas. Oh, seriously. I, I mean, it started off gloomy. And it's just gone DEFCON gloomy as well. I mean, after that dinner you went to last night, which we'll discuss in a few moments' time, uh, a certain gentleman who's been around a long time thinks that we could be facing either a depression or the end of civilization. So, you know, there's a couple of nice prospects for everyone. It does make you wonder why we're, you know, electrifying our cars and everything, or even bothering if we're going to have the end of civilization imminently. Uh, it's, it's, as always with these things, it's a warning, isn't it? And it's a reminder that there are potential outcomes that would be ves- much less favourable to the human species unless we get our act together. And I think that's the point, really. I mean, every year, George Soros comes to the World Economic Forum. Um, it's a hot ticket to go along to the dinner and hear what he has to say. And you've got one of those and, tickets. Yeah, well, thank you. In previous years, you know, he, well, OK, fine, fine. <laughs> Let me just talk about what he's going to talk about. All right. You talk about it. Uh, so basically, in previous years, he's discussed the state of the global economy. He's expressed concerns, you know, about too much debt and so on. This time round, we didn't really hear very much about the economics. He did talk about the risk of a depression and in part 
that may be down to the way that China has responded to its COVID strategy, but it also has a lot to do with indebtedness and, and where we are in terms of the easy money policy we've had from central banks. But really, this was a speech about politics, and it was about how the world needs to respond to what he described as closed societies of China and Russia. I know we're going to get to the moment, but, but it seems almost ironic. And I'm not, you know, this, this man knows far more about geopolitics and mm. economics than, than this mere mortal will ever do. But uh, the liberal order, the liberal democratic order, otherwise known as the West, actually has put in a spirited performance despite expectations in 2021 and 2022. We've seen more unity in the Western alliance, in NATO, in the G7, in the EU, than I have seen for years, possibly decades as well. So whilst I understand what George Soros is saying about standing up to authoritarianism and autocracy as well, the fact is he's saying it on the back of actually what I think has been a very strong stalwart comeback in 2022. On this issue... But I think his message is there needs to be more joined up thinking on other challenges as well, not least the position that China now has in terms of closing its own society. And there was a big warning in there as well about AI technology, which he feels is only um, accessibating the negative messages from the bots and from those who want to take a very negative posture on everything, basically. So his message is that AI is not helping, it's only amplifying the negative, which is making things worse. But let me just read the, uh, the story. George Soros has sounded the alarm on the state of the world in a high profile speech here at the World Economic Forum. The billionaire investor who famously bet against the pound in 1992, said China's zero COVID policy is pushing the world's second biggest economy into freefall and will also cause inflation that could lead to a worldwide depression. He also cautioned that the invasion of Ukraine could turn into World War III and the end of civilization, which made it imperative to defeat Russian President Vladimir Putin as soon as possible. Just one addendum to that. He has also sent a letter. I don't know whether you've seen, but he sent a letter to Mario Draghi. He feels that Mario Draghi is a serious individual who will take this issue on and take it forward. And his argument is that President Putin actually is more vulnerable on gas than he appears because his storage facilities will be full by July. So there is an issue there about whether he is then forced to shut down production of antiquated facilities and what that would mean going forward for the Russian economy because it would be difficult maybe to restart those production facilities very easily. As we've seen with Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, a lot of the Russian gas productions, much as they want to have an eastward-facing strategy towards China and Asia, a lot of that facility is geared towards supplying the West as well. So just like Europe can't build its infrastructure overnight for gas, and that came up in one or two of my panels yesterday, equally so, Russia can't just turn off the taps in the West and redirect that energy to the East overnight. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, Profits and trade should not come at the cost of our security. Uh, That was the strong message the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, and the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, sent to China as they took the big stage here in Davos. Both leaders doubling down on warnings when speaking to CNBC. 
China is, a, is an authoritarian power, uh, investing heavily in new modern uh, military capabilities, in uh, long-range missiles that can reach the whole uh, of NATO, uh, uh, advanced nuclear weapons. Uh, they don't share values. Uh, they crush down on democracy in Hong Kong, uh, minorities in the Uyghurs in China, uh, and they actually work more closely with Russia than, uh, than they've done ever before. They actually was a joint statement between President Xi and President Putin uh, uh, calling out, uh, on the close, uh, closing uh, NATO store, no more NATO enlargement. And of course, this matters to our security. We don't yeah. regard China as an adversary, but the, the rise of China, the military might of China, the, the, the cooperation with Russia matters to our security, and therefore NATO has to address that. Well, we have a very ambivalent relationship to China. There are topics where we're working well together. This is, for example, fighting climate change. This is also in China's interest. There are topics where we are strong competitors, that is the economy, and there are topics where we are systemic rivals, and this is governance model and, of course, human rights. So, um, therefore, we are, we are very vigilant what uh, supply chains with China is concerned. Important is never have only one supply chain. This is you're too dependent. Have a diversification of supply chains. That's the lesson we have learned in Europe and um, rely on your trustworthy partners. For us, it's, for example, um, the United States or Canada. Well, as Jeff said, the NATO Secretary General also spoke to CNBC and said that the alliance was ready to stand by Ukraine's side no matter what, but added it was hard to predict how the war will develop from here. It's hardly any other military act of aggression that has been more precisely predicted than this invasion. NATO allies uh, shared intelligence, made it publicly last fall, saying that uh, Russia was going to invade. Then I think it's much more difficult to predict the outcome of a war, how war uh, will evolve, uh, because uh, wars are hard to predict. Uh, it has proven again and again. And they are expensive. Uh, they are expensive. So, so therefore, expensive both, of course, for Russia, but also for, for, for Ukraine. Uh, our task is to support Ukraine with weapons, with military aid, uh, with economic support, humanitarian support. Many European allies also receive a lot of refugees uh, and then continue because this is about fundamental principles. This is about that Russia should not be able to get its way by the use of military force. Yeah, and interesting, uh, obviously, we talked to Jens Stoltenberg uh, up on our set here after he delivered that speech. And it was the same with the commission president. We had a first on CNBC interview after she delivered her main points here on the main stage at the World Economic Forum. I asked her very, very pointedly about this uh, embargo on Russian energy because, look, we've heard a lot about it. And there was um, a lot of fanfare about the fact that it was going to be implemented, but it still hasn't happened yet. Mm. So that was my question to her. You know, we've heard a lot of words, but when ultimately are we going to see that embargo put in place? Absolutely. We got rid already of Russian coal um, by cutting uh, the supply from Russian coal. Now we're working on the oil embargo very hard. Um, it is for us important that we work on the oil embargo in a way that we do not enable Putin to take oil he didn't uh, uh, deliver to Europe and sell it at higher prices on the world market. Therefore, this has to be a very tailored approach, which we are working on. Now, member states are really good, uh, supportive. The, the principle is diversify away to other suppliers and try to replace also for uh, the overall energy topic 
whatever you can with renewable energy. Have you been frustrated that not everybody has seemed as keen to sign up to the embargo as you might have hoped? Well, if I look at the last three months, we have unleashed five packages of sanctions and we were before the war the biggest trading partner to Russia. This is over. This is history now. But you can imagine how much we sanctioned. And even Volodymyr Zelensky in his speech here in Davos praised the unprecedented unity of uh, the democracies and Europe's unity and resolve and determination to act uh, was outstanding in the last three months. So this is what I see. Behind that is always hard work. But are we talking happen. days? Are we talking weeks? Are we talking months? Are we talking hours to get that deal done? Um, I hope we're talking about days. Um, so what we're looking at is one or two member states that are landlocked member states. Um, so cannot have uh, oil via the sea. Um, need alternatives in pipelines and in refineries. And there we try to find solutions how to make this possible, to create the solidarity that they get the oil some, from somewhere else, and um, that we support them in investments in renewables. Ursula von der Leyen there. Well, later today, Hadley will host a fireside chat with Ukraine's foreign minister, Dimitro Kaleba, here in Davos. We'll bring you the latest from that here on air. And, of course, you can catch up on cnbc.com with that story and through our other social media channels. We should just mention what's coming up on today's Squawk Box. We've got a lot of interesting guests lined up for you. We're going to speak with Manpower uh, CEO Jonas Preising. We're also going to hear from Cavestro boss Marcus Stelman, as well as the EU's Paolo Gentiloni and Valdis Dombrovskis. And later on in the programme, we'll sit down with the BBVA chair Carlos Torres uh, via uh, Suntory CEO Takeshi Ninami, uh, Sabanchi Holding CEO Cenk Alpa, and uh, Viber Dreyer, the CEO of Rabobank. It's a lot of uh, characters there, isn't it? That's, uh, that yeah, was a well tour. Well done for getting... We went all around the world there. <laughs> I'd say well done for getting through that lot. Right, later today I'll be moderating a clean energy uh, superpowers panel here in Davos. I'll be joined by Namibia's president, actually, Hage Geingob, uh, Renew Power CEO Sumant Sina, Henrik Andersen, the CEO of Vestas, of course, and the Spanish Deputy Prime Minister, Teresa Rivera. All that's coming up on Scorebox and beyond. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Uh, it was a fascinating U.S. session, actually. I spent a lot of time looking at it last night, far yeah. too much, while I was preparing panels. Um, the uh, Dow actually finished 48 points higher, having been significantly lower in the session. The S&P was only 32 points easier. The Nasdaq was only 2.4% lower. I say only because it had a heavy three-handle at one stage to the downside caused by the next stock you're about to see, uh, and that is Snap. And I've got that little chart here. Look at that. Snap mm. closed at 12.79, which was, uh, well, down significantly uh, from its previous close, 45% so far down this week as well. But the highest level I've got there, September 2021, look at that, Jeff, mm. 83 bucks. And that's 
the same kind of moves we saw uh, back in 2000 on a lot of these stocks. So when someone says to me, well, yeah, but how low can some of these stocks go? I say, have a look at how low Marconi went. I'm not saying this is like that. I'm just saying for those of you who think that some of these stocks can't carry on going down, they can. Uh, meanwhile, Treasuries, a bit of a flight to safety going on. The uh, 10-year yield closed at 2.7%. Jeff, a Glencore, fascinating story. Yeah, let's talk about Glencore. The company is said to plead guilty now to multiple charges of bribery and market manipulation following investigations spanning the US, the UK and Brazil. The commodities trading group says it's earmarked $1.5 billion for prospective penalty notices. In the UK, Glencore faces seven cases of bribery and corruption across its African operations, while in the United States, prosecutors have accused it of conducting a decades-long bribery scheme and seeking to manipulate benchmark oil prices. Really interesting, this next read, because I spoke to Herbert Dies yesterday, who thought that in the second half of this year, the battery supply problems were going to alleviate. And yet... Big rival, Stellantis, the CEO there, says he expects battery and raw material shortages to worsen. How about that? With car makers struggling to meet the increased demand for electric vehicles over the coming years. Again, amazing the time frame. Speaking at the launch of the car makers' new Indiana plant, the CEO Carlos Tavares said he expects the lack of materials to slow EV adoption for at least the next six years, at exactly the time when they want more adoption. He urged policymakers to ease aggressive adoption targets. Quite extraordinary. Uh, Lyft says it'll slow hiring and cut costs as it grapples with increasing market volatility and the spillover impact on technology stocks. But the company says it doesn't intend to lay off staff and will offer new stock options to eligible employees whose holdings have been caught in the sell-off. Shares down more than 60% year-to-date in that business. The nature of ultra-tight labour markets in the West and their bearing on inflation has been a key topic of discussion among delegates here at the World Economic Forum. Here's what they've told us. The recovery has been very strong, like you said, in the labour markets in many parts of the world. We've seen wage inflation to be very high in the US, less high in the euro area, high in the United Kingdom and in Canada. So we are seeing strong recoveries. Now, Labour force participation is not back to what it was in several of these countries. We still have the hesitancy of returning to work. Uh, that can change over time. It is improving, so we could see more labour coming in. But what we do need is some softening of the demand side of the, uh, of the equation, which is what central bank governors can bring about. For workers, the cost of living crisis is on top of actually a jobs crisis. Believe it or not, women lost $800 billion during the pandemic and they're not back in the workforce. Many of them have left the workforce. Young people are still struggling by and large to get a secure job. So it looks rosy on the official figures, but get underneath it and if we're to return to full employment in the formal economy, we need 575 million new jobs. So you've been hearing uh, here at the World Economic Forum a lot of uh, CEOs and a lot of policymakers expressing a little bit of gloom about the economic outlook. The response whenever you hear that is, but what's going on in the labour markets? The labour markets seem to be tight and strong. 
Is that set to continue or is it a lagging indicator that just hasn't caught up with the gloomy forecasts? Well, we've got a man who's going to tell us. Uh, Jonas Preising is chairman and CEO of Manpower Group and joins us on set. Jonas, nice to see you. you. So, So give us your interpretation then of the negative messaging, but the different picture we see in labor markets? Well, labor markets, Jeff, remain very strong across the world, at or even better than pre-pandemic levels. And we just uh, did a a survey looking ahead into the third quarter, asking employers what their hiring intentions were. And, you know, the resounding response was continued employer optimism in a labor market that is very tight for finding people is a big challenge for many organizations. And can I ask you about the the great resignation, that phenomena that we think has started to dissipate, but saw a lot of people take early retirement, take themselves voluntarily out of the workforce, a lot of people who don't want to come back to work because of health concerns post-COVID. What is your understanding of what that whole phenomena now means for continued tightness in labor markets or perhaps a reversal as people do begin slowly to drift back into employment? Well, we like to talk about the great reshuffle because in actual fact, if you look back historically on economic cycles, whenever you have a strong economic cycle, a lot of demand for labor, wages going up, turnover amongst personnel increases and people leave their jobs for better opportunities in other places. And we have a pandemic-induced anomaly in the labor market with the supply trucks that's really driving sky-high demand for labor. And to us, it's very normal at that point that you'll find 20 or 30 percent higher turnover of people leaving because most people are leaving straight away into another job. And so as you look at that, you know, we would expect that to uh, start to subside somewhat as markets cool down a little bit, labor markets normalize a little bit following the pandemic. If you look at the participation rate in labor markets in Europe, it's actually where it was pre-pandemic. In the U.S., you still have a little bit more than a million people that are outside of the labor market that used to be there, but they are mostly people who retired early, and we believe over time they will come back as well. So we would expect this to normalize over time. When Jeff and I go up against European policymakers, they say, well, we're different over here. We have an exceptionalism compared with what's going on in the United States when I refer them to the JOLTS data. And then I refer them back to the fact that Ige Metal thinks its workers can get 8.2% this year. And then they come back to me and say it's an outlier. Just tell me what the European jobs market looks like, specifically with wage increases, because I think we've got that to come still, despite the fact that policymakers still keep telling me, oh, the raw material increases are abating, hence inflation isn't what you think it is. Our estimate is that wage inflation you know, will stabilize pretty soon and start to come well, down. 11, yes. Well, it should come, it'll come down high. It'll still be higher than it was pre-pandemic. But if you're thinking about wage inflation in different parts of Europe, you know, if it's at 6 or 7 or 5%, like in France, it should come down to a 2 or 3% level towards the end of the year. As you anniversary some of the rapid increases, and you're also starting to really, you know, come up against a cooling labor market. Cooling labor market, but a cost of living crisis. And, and again, that's been a subject of many of our conversations here in Davos as well. There is no doubt about it that if I'm a worker and I'm getting a 3% or a 4% pay rise as well, and yet my inflation rate and individual inflation rates are way above the headline 8-9% in many cases because of the preponderance of energy and food. So we're asking people to take lower salaries than before the pandemic? 
Well, what we have to remember is that real wages increased very nicely uh, up until the summer of uh, last year. So let me just confirm, and I'm going to keep interrupting you, but this is important. Real wages moved ahead very nicely up until the summer of last year. At the same time, we had negative 0.5 deposit rate at the ECB. Right. So we wow. had a real wage increase for a number of years. And then we had a rapid increase in inflation, in particular starting, starting this year. So what workers are feeling right now is real incomes so nominal wages going up, but real incomes going down, that will, you know, they will remember this, but if the inflation starts to come down reasonably soon and they start to see a cooling, you know, we think that workers' expectations will also be lower. But you're right, of course, if inflation, headline inflation continues at its current pace and we are far into 2022, workers' expectations is that they also want to see their real wages recover some of the losses that they've had due to the inflationary environment. You've made some interesting comments about the ability of companies to continue to pass through these higher costs. And uh, I think you used the term tipping point. We've seen in some of the retailers' reports, actually, that there is now some resistance to take higher priced goods. So your expectation from here on in is wage inflation begins to come down, general inflation begins to come down, and we're at a tipping point in terms of the pass-through. That is exactly our assessment, Jeff. We would expect that employers at this point are looking at the wage increases, consumers that are not and no longer being able to absorb those increases into price for goods and services, they will start to pull back somewhat, which means expectations overall will start to come back. We start to anniversary some of the rapid increases, and then we start to see inflation uh, come down gradually over the 2022. Of course, we've talked in the generic on a, on a global basis of what you expect. Is there any outlier internationally, either to the upside or downside, that we should be considering? I think a lot of the anomalies that we see in, at its most extreme come from the United States, where if you think about the, how we went into the pandemic, unemployment spiked up to 14% from 3.5%, came down hard again, down to 3.5%, whereas here in the European Union and in Europe, you really saw unemployment move from 6 or 7% up to 8% and then down slightly below uh, 7%. So the movements are much, le much less extreme and wage inflation is lower in Europe than it is in the Just United on States. On a monthly basis, I obsess over the jolts. Am I right, too? Um, you know, if you think about how JOLT is composed, it is all of the ads for jobs. Some employers may be advertising for more positions than they actually ah, intend to hire for. So uh, we think of this as a good indicator, but not an absolute, but rather just an indicator, as you would expect, of a very hot labor market. That's why we have you on set as just, well. Uh, and, uh, I know you've been doing a, a bit of uh, surveying on when exactly the World Economic Forum should be taking place, <laughs> whether it should be in the winter or whether it should be in the spring or the summer. I know Klaus Schwab gets up early to watch this programme. What, what's the consensus at the moment? I think in my informal polling amongst colleagues here in Davos, it's very clearly that this summer Davos is a very good idea for lots of reasons. Also because last time we were here, oh, we're, sitting in, we're sitting in jackets and it's snowing outside and it's very cold. Yeah, you know, cold. in years go. gone by, we used to have like a, a fun sketch kind of thing. So we should have had the CEOs who yes, wants it. Like Who a swingometer, Yeah, but things are so gloomy now. Well, we can't do that. I know it might have we? seemed inappropriate. Well, no one asked yeah. us, and we know what we're voting for. Yes. Ready? Summer. 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 Yeah. It's January the 16th next year. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.